Welcome to the Unearthed Man podcast, the journey of becoming a conscious man. Hey all, Stephen here and welcome to episode 71 of the Unearthed Man podcast. I enjoyed the chat with Zach last week. I thought he brought a different perspective on masculinity, particularly his views on ancient tribal practices. I love the diversity of the guests who have agreed to come into the podcast. I was scrolling through Instagram recently and came across a post from First Peoples Victoria. What I read shocked me. The post was all about the abuse they have been receiving recently in the comments on their posts from non-Indigenous people. The comments were simply disgraceful. I will not go into them. Short of saying, they effectively supported the genocide of the First Nations people here in Australia and referred to them as second and third rate citizens. Now, I'm going to be really honest. I can't believe how this type of behavior still exists. And it's evident that this is learned generational behavior. No wonder our Indigenous brothers and sisters are exhausted from enduring racial abuse daily. We've got to educate ourselves regarding people of color and race and understand that we are all equal. So, on this point, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this unceded land and pay respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Now, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Surf Coast Wellness Rooms, based in Torquay, Victoria, Australia. You know, as men, we've spent a lot of time looking after everyone else and caring for a whole of other people, but we spend little time caring for ourselves. So you now have an opportunity to change all that. Using the code THEUNEARTHEDMAN10 when booking, you'll receive a 10% discount on any of their services, including float tanks, infrared saunas, massages, and salt therapy. It's great to use before or after a day at the beach. You can find a link to their website and the code below. Now, here are a few things to go through before we kick off today's guest. The Unearthed Men community comprises men willing to support and be supported by other men, and it continues to grow. So if you're a man or know of a man who is seeking his tribe or his community, then please use a link in the show notes below to sign up. Alternatively, you can message me via any of my social media channels. Secondly, please subscribe to the podcast via your preferred app and leave a review. The quickest way to enable the podcast to become more accessible worldwide is to receive a five-star review. And also by doing this, you're acknowledging and thanking my guests for their time, effort, and wisdom. And finally, if you're a man who's had enough of feeling angry, having arguments with your partner and children, and reverting to ways of avoiding the pain of dealing with your emotions, then reach out so we can have a chat. Expressions of interest for my eight-week men's empowerment program are now open. I'm only taking 10 men into each eight-week program this year, so if you are interested, click the link below to join the waitlist as it is filling fast. Now, on to today's episode. My guest today had his first transcend, transcendent, transcendent meditation experience at 13. Since then, he's been a disciple under the greatest Buddhist masters of our time. As a 25-plus martial arts teacher and practitioner, he brings the value of embodied teachings and philosophies of the East these are direct experiences through meditation into his coaching and vision for impacting the world. As a serial entrepreneur, he aspires to bring his practical business experience and spiritual and contemplative background to help shift the world in the most inspirational and connected world possible. His business, Breakthrough Coaching, is focused on helping purpose-driven high performers excel. He uses evidence-based, evidence-backed methodologies to facilitate alignment with his clients' vision and goals to make them easily attainable eliminating burnout and procrastination and imbalance. Welcome to the Unearthed Man podcast, Tim Bui. Did I say the rise, Bui, or Bui? Bui, yeah, Bui, no Tim problem, Bui. though. How are you, Tim? Yeah, 
I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, uh, the one thing that really intrigued me is the uh, transcendent meditation experience at the age of 13. Um, so yeah. you know, that's probably very uncommon, I would say, yeah, for, for people to go through that experience. So just out of interest, can we sort of head straight down into into that pathway and sort of understand, you know, what that was like look like for you? Like what was, was that part of you know, you growing up? Was it, you know, was your family into meditation and everything else? Or, you know, what led into that experience? Yeah, I've been growing. I grew up in a Buddhist household, but we weren't really like big into meditation. It was just more of this sort of generational type of cultural Buddhism where kind of, uh, you know, like pay respects to your ancestors, like in Mulan. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that was a really random reference, but yeah, it's like <laughs> Mulan. And so there's not a lot of like spiritual practices. It's just kind of just, I don't know, to me, a little superstitious stuff. Um. But I was curious about meditation because I had heard about it and I was listening at some of the influences I had at the time was like Dr. Wayne Dyer and uh, Bruce uh, Lipton. Or is it Bruce Lipton? Yeah. So, yep. you know, just some more Western people that actually introduced me to this idea and um, I didn't know how to do it. So I just looked it up on Google. How do you meditate? And then they showed me, okay, there's different ways. And so I just tried one way and I tried it a handful, less than a handful of times. And I had an, basically an out-of-body experience where like I, the time just stopped. Like I didn't feel like I didn't need to breathe anymore. Like, I would, like each breath that I drew, it just seemed like it was more air than I needed. And I just slowly just breathed less and less until I just reached the state where I'll say it's hard to describe, but it felt like I stepped into eternity and it felt like I left the shell, you know, the simulation, so to speak of mm -hmm. like reality. And then I, I felt and experienced the real thing, whatever the real thing is. And it, it was outside of my body, outside of time, outside of space. And so it was a very hard experience to uh, share but it, it led to like a like a cessation of of my ego for a temporary bit you know just of associating with this kid with the story with these parents with the school with these grades and all this other stuff that i was just you know every day that was me and then for a while that just wasn't me anymore and then it just it was um it was actually quite distracting you know to to be a little kid and uh you just have this like flashback or like think about these like deeper moments while you're, I don't know, playing dodgeball or something silly. Hmm. And it led to like a huge disconnect, I think, between myself and my friends, my teachers, my sister, my parents, because there wasn't really like, it's almost like you're telling your parents you got abducted by aliens, right? It's like, yeah. they're, it's just like, you know, what, how, how do you explain that? And uh, what's, what, what's the words, you know, to, to, to describe that I, I even right now, I even have a hard time describing it. So, um, but yeah, that was like a series of many very interesting out-of-body experiences that I've had since, since then. And it just really led me down this path of trying to figure out what it is that I'm here to do or we're all here to do and how I fit in the world. And so that brings me to your podcast today. Yeah, uh, th thanks for sharing that. Just, just to go back on a couple of things, because just, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of people aspire 
to get, you know, transcendent, you know, to be able to actually have that out-of-body experience as part of meditation. You know, people practice and mm. practice and, and they may not get there. Um, but to have that at the age of 13, as you said, then there became a level of, you know, somewhat connection but disconnection from, you know, your, your sister and your parents and, and school. So what challenges does that bring up for you? Just because, you know, at the age of 13, you know, we're just not, I don't know, I don't want to use the word immature, but there's levels of maturity to be able to handle. Like at age of 13, you just, you know, you're sort of somewhat coming into puberty. You're somewhat leaving, I suppose, junior school into high school. And there's all this stuff that's going on. So, you know, what challenges you have to go through as part of that to try and sort of work out, you know, how to navigate? I was just starting to go into my rebellious phase. And so I was already looking for my own path. Look, like, it was this weird juxtaposition of, you know, when you're that age, you feel like you know the world and you know everything, but it's just like within the confines of your family and school. And at the same time, you know, having this experience, knowing that, like, I know not like nothing pretty much. <laughs> and so, like, I'm in this weird situation where, like, I, I start to feel alienated within myself because I don't have anybody to share this with. And I actually did, I, I did share it with uh, a friend, but um, it, it was just like a very meaningless conversation. Like we, I, I told him what happened and then we literally, he just like blinked and then we moved on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that describes the experience for, for a very long time that I, I think it just made me really lonely because it's such a profound experience yet there's nobody to share it with, you know? And I think, you know, without that level of intimacy, without that level of sharing something that's so profound with, with somebody and having them be able to reflect that experience and share like their perception of it, at least to be seen was, was uh, pretty damaging. I think so I, I, I would say I was pretty depressed until like maybe about like 25 or so. So it took me, I mean, I wouldn't say it was just that it was many, many things like just my disconnection with my, my parents. Um, and then like from that also not feeling like accepted at school and then like just a lot of just, I think, um, I think it was mostly not being able to, to feel like I fit anywhere, you know, because mm. my parents, they, they come from Vietnam and I grew up in California and, uh, I was like the only one of the, like one of two like Asian kids. And so not having, not being quite American, not being quite Vietnamese, not being quite a normal little kid and not quite being an adult. Like I just sat in this no man's land and I kind of just had to figure everything out by myself. Was, that's, that's what it felt like at least. So I think it was pretty, pretty lonely because I felt like, you know, I was always like either trying to be a, like a chameleon or I was just trying to act like everybody else even though I had this crazy experience that I knew that all this stuff was just a bunch of baloney, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word chameleon because I guess I had on a couple of weeks ago um, a guy, who, um, a gay guy who grew up in rural Arkansas. You know, basically mm. he said he had to play the same role because to a degree it was the same. You know, you don't, gay is yeah. not accepted in a Christian area of uh, rural Arkansas um, in, in that sort of family. So, you know, what was some of the, you know, so we talk about often, you know, 
when we talk about the spiritual world and all the buzzwords and everything else, we talk about the masks we wear and these sorts of things. So was that something you had to start to revert to because you knew that you sort of, you know, you had this experience and you were different and there was something happening to you, but to fit in, you then had to say, hey, I'm going to be the sports guy or the academic guy or or what happens to be. Did you start to go down that path of, you know, that was the way I be, I got friends and that's why I felt accepted? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just about being, how do you be seen when people are looking for, you know, especially other males, other boys, other teens at that time, looking for little status symbols or sort of ways that they can evaluate you within some sort of hierarchy. And if you exist without, outside of that hierarchy, it's very hard for them to figure out what to do with you. Therefore, you will not make friends. <laughs> yeah. So I had to, you know, be, decide I was going to be, you know, this kid who liked hip hop music, like Tupac was my role model that I liked fast cars. And, you know, I just picked out, you know, this, this avatar, right. This, yeah. this sort of character that a collection of this identity of these things that were other people thought was cool or other people thought were respectable or admirable. And, you know, that's how I built my life. And I think, you know, probably a lot of people still do that. Um, I think the more expectations we have, and then there's this idea of a mimesis, right? Like, uh, I forget his name, Rene something, but he just came up with this, he's a Frenchman, came up with this a theory about like how everything that we want is just from somebody else's idea. And we just want it because somebody else wants it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I that's that was pretty much how I started to learn how to fit in. Was let me just do what other people think are is cool, and then I didn't really have my own identity for a really long time because I really just wanted to strive to reach that peak that somebody else had set out there for me. Like whether that's like try to dunk a basketball or you know whatever, being like a four foot six kid. Uh, that was not possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't worry. I'm a height challenge. So I know exactly what that means. Um, <laughs> the um, I, yeah. So on that point, and um, Jim Carrey's, you know, I know people see him as a comedian, but he's, you know, he's got a new life as well. And um, recently, I was watching something, and he just put it in a very simple terms that pretty much for him, depression is your body telling you that you're tired of playing a character of who you're not. And so we end up being just exhausted trying to play this character and it's because you have to put it on every single day. Um, so is that sort of something you spoke about? You probably, you know, on reflection, you probably had a level of depression up until mid-20s. Was that just exhausting for you to have to go through that, that sort of process? Um, I want to get back into your meditation practice, but I'd like to explore this a little bit at the moment. Yeah, I'm totally open. You can we can talk about anything. It's I, I think it's akin to being lost at sea with no compass because the compass or the north star is what you know about yourself. And I would argue that there's no real knowledge outside of the knowledge that you have about yourself because everything is a reflection of that. It's everything that we know is something in relation to who we are. Otherwise, like there's no real relevance. The true relevance is to who we think we are, um, whether that's an ephemeral thing or not. That's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And so, I I think that during that period, you know, 
being this chameleon who in one situation or one setting would act a certain way. Like I had a friend who I grew up with, who he lived across the street from me. He ended up being uh, a Confederate flag type of guy. Let's say he, you know, my, he's a, he's one of my best friends, late, late, late best friend though. He has passed away. Um, but you know, around him and his group of friends, they would say all kinds of racist things about all the races, including Asians, but they'd be like, no, but Tim, Tim's cool though. Tim's cool. And so like, uh, but so and, like and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so like, they would be like, you know, saying all these like terrible things about people. And then, you know, I wouldn't say anything because I'm not racist, but you know, I wouldn't make it awkward. I, I would just, just laugh or whatever. Right. But you know, just things like that. I think just that when you're laughing at something that's not funny or truly just terrible, like, I think it does something to you. And so like, in each of these different types of contexts, whether it's laughing at things that are racist or aspiring to be the fastest driver on the street race or something that things that just didn't matter to me, I think that does do something to you. I think that like chips away at, at your sense of esteem for who you are, because you're, you're kind of forsaking who you are for this other thing that you deem that's more valuable outside of yourself. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's that whole, um, yeah, and all the, as as I was saying, I've had many conversations with men, and I think one of the themes that does keep coming up is there's you know the path that you probably discovered at the age of thirteen, you know, or it was it was open to you to go, hey, maybe there's more about life and what's going on here, and then there's a path that everyone else actually expects us to go and do, you know, to to as you said, go and drive the fast car, go and be the sports person, go and be the academic, you know, whether it be our parents, whether it be our friends, and so. We end up playing playing this well to the point where I think that's where some men now are really lost because they've moved so far away from that person that they were meant to be as a young child with that creativity and that uniqueness and everything else that they're now off in this world and they've just filled the world with all these chameleon style, um, I suppose, um, distracting techniques. You know, so now they'll go off and, you know, they'll drink and they'll gamble or, you know, they'll do porn or, you know, they, they get embedded in local football teams or they become that really, you know, passionate supporter of certain sports teams and everything else because that's now, that's the thing because that helps them just completely stay away from maybe being willing to lose that friendship group along the way and go back and say, mm. maybe there is a group that does accept me for who I am as opposed to me trying to find that acceptance. Yeah, I think you really hit on something there. It's that short-term sort of gratification and then seeking things that make you happy, but they don't really fulfill you because you look around and, you know, your furniture even is the style of something that's chic or modern at the time, but it's not something that really makes you happy. And then you look at that and you can't really enjoy it. And I think there's, there's some level of, of that in your taste, in your discernment that, that permeates through many other areas of your life that make life more deeply dissatisfying. Yeah, definitely. So um, can we sort of move? So did you continue on, even though, you know, you, you had this experience, did you then sort of go, Hey, I'm going to, this meditation stuff's pretty cool. Even though, you know, I'm sort of, my friends don't really understand what happened or that, that conversation. Did you continue on going back into that meditation practice or did you sort of go, Hey, you know, I stopped it for a period and then jumped in later on. 
Yeah, it's funny you're you're saying earlier how people aspire to that, and so uh, to, you know to have that sort of out of body experience. And I would say that I try to do that too. <laughs> just you know, like, oh, this is going to be just like last time. I'm just going to try to breathe slower. And, no, nothing. Like I would try for weeks, days on end, and for much longer. But I would just end up frustrating myself because that's just not how you go about it. Where you're just seeking for this, 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 this state, try to rep- replicate all the same environments at the same time, and just all this foolishness. And so it was a huge distraction. I did uh, get kicked out of middle school because I was sort of a bad boy, got in a lot of trouble. I wasn't a cool bad boy, I was just somebody who got in a lot of trouble. I got like suspended from the school buses a lot, suspended from school, lots of fights and stuff. And uh, my parents tried to send me off to like a Buddhist boarding school. And then they sent me to like a Buddhist retreat where I would learn how to meditate. And so I did learn how to meditate formally. And then since then, I've been practicing meditation on a pretty regular basis. There was a lot of, I think when I was really young, I think I was about eight or nine, I think eight. I had my first lucid dream. I wanted to be this, this Power Ranger really bad. I wanted to be the Green Ranger. And I went through the dream and I was like, I don't know, the blue ranger or something i was like oh. and then like i just forced myself to go back and be the green ranger and then that's when i realized i could lucid dream and that just became a recurring thing so between like the lucid dreaming and this this type of meditation that occasionally i would have out-of-body experiences i would see things i would travel outside of my body um i would say i took it for granted for most of my high school years until. I was about 22 or 23. And this is when like the new age movement was, was starting to get big. So this is all this stuff about uh, Eckhart Tolle and uh, what's the, some other guy with the being present or something like that. <laughs> and then the, the verbiage started coming out to explain these experiences that I was experiencing that other people could experience them and then had experienced them. And there was, you know, these basically manuals and, what to do and how to be. And then that got me deeper into it because the language that we have is so important in how we experience something. And with we, when we don't have the language to describe something or the framework to really look at a situation or an experience, there's, it's ineffable. And when it's ineffable, it lives in the ether and it can never be touched. And that's the interesting thing about when you learn, like I've learned maybe three or four languages. And there are certain expressions that you can have in a different language that it can't even come close to a different language. But, but it's because that expression is so key to that culture that it really speaks to something in the, the human soul or consciousness. And it's just, yeah. So I think language is, is so important and so key in, in describing these types of situations. And I think the English language is, is pretty good. I think scientifically, I think it's very good at breaking things down to a granular level, but I think it uh, leaves something to be desired for more romantic aspects and more, even we say like energetic principles. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I mean, I don't speak any other languages. It's all though, you know, I'm aware of Sanskrit, you know, and there is words in mm. Sanskrit that describes certain things and they're just non-translatable into an English language because I think you're right. A lot of the uh, 
ancient older languages from, from way back actually described a feeling and described an emotion. But I think our English language is all about trying to describe the logic. We have to have this logic view, this scientific view on, on how it actually works. And yeah, so I, I agree. Um, there's aspects within the English language where yeah, you just can't put words to it. But 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 even like um how we go about like how parts of our brain work, right? Like the very core of our brain, the experiential part of our brain, you know, it doesn't have words. That's what's tapped yeah. into the feelings. And that's where you can actually just have this great emotion. People go, well, hey, you're feeling you go, well, I can't really describe it because you can't, because it's yeah. you can't describe a feel. We try to put words around it, but we can't actually, you know, get to that point and actually describe it. Um for me, you know, I've I've looked a lot into, you know, like the masculine archetypes and everything else. And mm. I I'm now actually getting a deeper understanding of of like the lover archetype, which is uh-huh that pure ability just to see things for as they are rather than having to describe them or to actually interpret them or be able to, you know, actually, yeah, just go through that whole, or as you you mentioned before, hierarchy them, you know, like Mm. that thing just is, it has its own essence. It has its own beauty. It has its own sense. And, and it just, you can't really describe it. Or you could, or you could botanically want to describe like a flower, right? But then that takes away the whole essence of what that flower is, and then its role in in the in the, I suppose our systems and how our ecosystems and all that work. So, yeah, I'm getting more and more aligned into that space. I suppose. I love that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. That's quite enlightening. I haven't really. This is actually the first time I've talked about language and in, in this way on a podcast or just in general, really. And I think. It just points to the fact that it's like, I think that's what, what was important for martial arts for me, because there was something in martial arts that in the, in the form of the movement and how to describe the movement that isn't in spoken language. It's almost like a dance. And I think a dance is more universal relatable where you have something that's more groovy. You have something that's more sharp and you know we can talk about these energetic characteristics of these movements but they also exist not just in the physical plane but they can exist you know emotionally socially mentally uh and spiritually and we just without the words and and the language to really put these 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 experiences together or shared common language because if you and i were to have like a deep conversation i don't know about philosophy or something we'd have to start with maybe like 20 minutes or 10 minutes of just definitions of just making sure we're on the same page right and so, so when it comes to just having these these conversations about the profound what could be quote unquote the ineffable it would be really hard to use just our shared common english language to to get to that so there is something really special about language that I will meditate on this evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the challenge we have is where I think there's a movement to try to move away, like, you know, some of the old ancient languages in China and everything else just aren't spoken anymore you know, and in very areas because, you know, they're shutting down provinces and all these sorts of things. And so, you know, even in some of the Indian and I like here in, in Australia, you know, there was – 250 plus mobs that made up this land that we lived in, right? People sort of forget that this was like equivalent to Europe. This was yeah. all these different mobs that lived here. Each one of them had a different language. Now there was shared, some shared commonality in some of those language things, but you know, now you look around and most of the nearly 80% of the languages disappeared. 
because there's that whole, I don't know, fear, but some of that language, again, some of the words cannot be um, translated into English because they described a totality, you know, and, and I like words that just describe a totality, like one word just says, I'm summing all this up in that word. And, and when someone says a word, people feel and know what that word means without having to be descriptive. And, yeah, it's sad that we're moving away from, from that piece as well, I reckon. It would be cool if we, instead of, you know, moving away from that into English, we moved away from that into telepathy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be so cool. Yeah. I mean, what, what are the great, um, you know, and you touched on martial arts and different things, you know, around the movement. It's, um, yeah, I, I've tried varying things. And, and one of the ones that I did try for a period of time was Tai Chi. And nice. I, just, yeah. I just really loved it. And, you know, it's just that whole purity in the simplicity of the movement but the complexity in the movement all at the same time in that smoothness and, and just trying mm. to to get to that and after doing the 45 minutes or an hour you realized you thought about nothing yeah you, know, you walked away and going what was i thinking in that and you go i actually did not there was no voice in my head there's no chatter there's nothing going on it was just too pure presence in the movement with yeah. connecting with this smoothness of the movement of my body and probably getting it completely wrong, but it was right for me at those sorts of things. And again, I think for me, that goes back to our society is so fast and wants to move. So, you know, move at such a speed and mm. some of these practices, I think that's why people really struggle with of slowing down and doing a Qigong, a Tai Chi, you know, other forms of martial arts, meditation practice because it's like i don't have time for this but it's interesting how you can create time by doing those practices yes 100 percent. and i think with tai chi since you have that frame of reference one of the things is one of the things that i study and uh, what is interesting about it is since it's a meditation in movement that there are certain i would say first principles that can be taken from that experience that are directly transferable to other aspects of reality just in terms of movement in terms of expression in terms of distance in terms of proprioception in terms of interoception and there's this these subtle level ups that you get when as you spend time in that that translate over to just your normal daily life checking in at work you know saying hi to your your partner and your friends like there's an evenness that I think when when somebody practices something like Tai Chi, that your your mind transforms a little bit and you become more calm, you become more even, you become more like maybe like water or however somebody would describe it. Hmm. I mean the other the other one that I've been doing recently, um, which I've got to get back into a little bit more is uh learning the didgeridoo. So basically that's ah. uh, um and, and that was from a, a local elder. Um, who's actually teaching me how to play that. And again, for that period of time, and, and we use a his style rather than the very fast style, it's actually based on a very low drone meditation style. So it's actually getting some very low, long sounds and everything coming out. And again, when you're sitting there, just got this sound and everything, particularly if you're two or three of you around together playing, it's it's a similar experience, you know, that all yeah. you are is you are there connected to the music. And as I said, I think you said telepathy, but that's the thing about it. When you play music with other people, you actually, I think you move into a level of telepathy 
because yeah. you start to feel what they're playing. You're not just listening to it, but you actually can start to feel that movement of the change of tone and the change of vibration and the change of what's happening around you. And if you're really tapped in, you can actually just adapt to a level of that telepathy, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I think what's so cool about it is that it, it's it's already something that exists within us. I don't think that there's a separation between either you've had it or you haven't had it. And that's something that I I find most of my life in my waking state that I am sort of in this little slip space of the sweet spot of of being like in tune and present with everything, but still like in this dance. And there's you can see it in in sports too. In, a, in I was playing flag football. I recently learned how to play that, and I learned how to play basketball recently too. And you know, there is something about when you're really everybody is sort of in the zone, and we're all synced, and we kind of know what's going on. We know this person's tendencies, and we just everything just happens almost as if it's on its own when you're all on the same frequency. That's I think whether that's music, it's just it's a it's a human. I think it's a fundamental human experience that does allow us to step outside of our normal everyday concerns, everyday considerations, so that we have a chance to, I think, like channel or tap into the divine, just 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 being an observer of, of that, that improvisation that just happens to just work out perfectly. Yeah, I agree. Now, I know that you're into um, a term called flow state. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of a, a similar down that path about, you know, that, that flow state and, you know, and you see like a LeBron James, it's, you know, 50, 60 points. They just go, he was in flow that on that night. And and you can see like professionals or different people, they just find that the way that they can just drop into this almost zoned in, uninterruptible, perceptive place like they just know where the ball is going to come from they they just know on the court where the other people are you know and yeah. and so they can you know when teams are in that flow state it's like yeah everything just as if they're operating as one um is, is what is that something that you you do and you're into and that you work with other people on it definitely is a core component of my life it was such a core component that i didn't realize that people that i just forgot that it's not exactly a normal experience that uh yeah i think because uh i have done so much work on myself what can say i don't really have negative thoughts or automatic negative thoughts or self-recursive thoughts i don't like look in the mirror and look focus on any any specific thing or when i look at myself in the mirror just this piece of flesh but i know that some people when they look in the mirror they focus on their um maybe negative, some, some, something about their face. I could talk about this mole on my face. Oh, this ugly thing is looking back at me or something. And I think it, it kind of spoils reality a little bit when there are little things that remind you of other little things that you don't like. And I think that's what takes us out uh, of, of being in the flow. And some of it, you know, it could be trauma or some of it could just be a strong preference uh, or dislike. Um, but each of those times that we have those experiences, especially if it's related to something that will take us into a fire or flight state, um, it, we we lose that half a beat or just that moment where the rest of you know the time, if we look at it as like a sheet of music, it's still going. Now we're just like half a beat behind, then we're trying to catch up. And so 
Um, for me, a lot of my work has been in just sharing my direct experience in, um, in a space where I use neurolinguistic programming, some hypnosis te techniques to really reflect. And I think this is probably something that I didn't get when I was younger after that transcendental meditation experience, I guess, and as we're putting all this together is I didn't have a chance to be seen and reflected on a level that I felt was appropriate. And what I mean by that is in that moment, when I told that kid, my friend, and he just kind of blinked at me and we moved on, that was the, the <laughs> basically not being seen. Right. And yep. I think there's, there's a level of profoundness that I have that I can share with people in the space that I can, I help bring out something within themselves because I think meditation, part of it is just looking with clarity. And if you, one of the descriptions that the Buddha used was the, uh, when you look in a mirror, meditation is just like that. And each time you meditate, it's sort of like clearing the mirror so you can see yourself. And I think when we, you and I, or anybody talks to one another, we are sort of reflections of each other, except the people who have more, say, projections, automatic negative thoughts and things like that. It's harder for them to reflect. And it's more of their stuff that comes up in the way of an actual direct connection. And so I think one of the, the things that I've been endowed with is just maybe since I've been doing this for so long is that like I can hold a really clean space with free of any projections and anything like that. And it's not about what I want or anything like that. It's just really just how do we grow this, this reflection and allow you to see what you are and how beautiful that is and how inspiring and how impactful and how powerful that that is as a being and um, it's very transformative. So usually, you know, two, three hour sessions, um, it's a, it's a big, big transformation. So it's very yeah. exciting for me. No, I love that. I love that. I mean, I see my, my role as a coach, not that I'm not the healer. Like my role as a coach is to just help people understand the layers that over years that they either them or their parents or they've allowed to be putting, put in front of them. Like they've just built up the shield and, Oh, I'm like exactly there. It's just a mirror saying, so today we get to see this part of the shield so they can actually remove that. And the next day as a mirror, they get to see that part of the shield in front of them and then slowly just help them go on the journey of slowly moving. You know, it's like these little building blocks that they put up front of them. We can just move them out one by one until they get to the point where they can actually get back and see the true essence of who they are and the powerful person they are and, you know, the infinite possibilities that they have in front of them that yes. were removed by putting up walls, you know, due, due to try to be, you know, I wasn't seen, so therefore I had to feel safe. So how do I feel safe? So I put up another barrier and then I block myself off again because that person was seen as the weird kid or that person was seen as the unloved kid. And so I don't want that anymore. And it's just like, no, no, it's okay. We can come all the way back. And I just go back to the very basic essence that, you know, um, and, and I'll put aside I'll, I'll, you know, past life and ancestral, you know, carrying on into this, the, into our soul in this life. But at the point we're born, we are just pure to, mm. to a degree. And then it's that naught to seven where things start to get added onto us and, and we get, you know, asked to be moved away from, from where we are or what we could actually do. Um, I have a, a question for you, which um, the one thing I sort of see, well, I, I hear a lot of people say this, yeah, I can't meditate. I'm no good at meditating. You know, um, and I know this is probably isn't your only practice, but but yeah, I'd love to get your views on you know 
what do you see as meditation? You know, what what do you how would you suggest to men or other people to say, hey, here's a, here's something you do, or this is what you're going to get out of a meditation practice, or you know, this is what being able to accept meditation to look like. Mm, yeah, there, I think there are two types of meditation. If we use the framework, and I think this is what's beautiful about using frameworks from other cultures too. So this framework is sort of this yin-yang framework of masculine or feminine or contracting or expansion. And so there are two main, I think, types of meditation. The expanding is just a release type of meditation. You're just surrendering. It's sort of this non-focused meditation. Whatever arises, allow it to arise. Don't follow it. That sort of thing. And then you have this other kind where it's very directly focused, anchored to some type of practice, whether that's monitoring your breathing, whether it's holding a certain type of cadence with your breathing or something like that. So uh, I think they both boil, they, they take you down the same path, except I would say that the ones that are, we can say more the doing type, or, you know, with the cadence or some type of anchor, sometimes I think that kind in the long run, if we're talking about compounding over years, I think it can lead to some types of, let's say, side quests. <laughs> because you, you might have a divine realization. You might have a transcendental experience, except it doesn't really, in the ultimate truth, of the, you know, in the entire span of your life, it's not going to change your life that much. Like it's, it's, it's really just a big distraction, although it's true in its essence and there's nothing, nobody can ever take away a direct experience that you have at the same time. It's not something you have control over. And a lot, oftentimes when people have these types of, you know, whether you can just be like a med manifestation meditation, right? So you spend your time doing this manifestation meditation. So you get a bunch of stuff or whatever you, you program your reticular activating system to start noticing certain types of things. And you're more in tune with those things. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that makes us happiest is probably opening up the degrees of freedom in which we can behave and respond with the environment. And that has a lot to do with the level of presence that we have with that, that environment, because the more that we're able to receive the environment and that's like the level of presence, then the more we can have this interplay with it, except when we have this extremely rigid sense of who we are, then we are not as free to have this boyhood little <laughs> high pitch laugh or, you know, whatever it is, because there's so much judgment. There's so much, I can't do this. I can't do that. People look how, what do they think of me? And then, you know, I'm, I'm so like, I'm so important and stuff. And so I think the other kind allows us to release all we kind of, so let's talk about your question here. It's like, uh, people say they're not good meditators or they have trouble meditating. I think the problem there is people are so used to doing and so those types of meditations that have an anchor is a doing type of meditation. And the, the other kind is a do nothing type of meditation. And that is difficult for people. So it's sometimes I would say the bridge is to do something type of meditation, uh, you know, focusing on breathing. Zazen is a good one. You can just count to 10 with each breath, inhale, exhale, that's one, two, and then all the way to 10 and the reset. And if you notice you went to 12, obviously you weren't paying attention. So a self-corrective mechanism, you have some feedback there. And then once you have that feedback, you can get into flow by, by just kind of monitoring that, that process. Uh, so that is one way, just leaning into that doing this. I think the other way is, is it really important because when you're talking about the archetypes, one of the archetypes is the magician and the magician 
is able to change spaces, I think. So you have the liminal space and then you have the subliminal space and then you just have the profane space. And so there are all these different types of spaces that exist within our dimension, except for how we behave in a certain space. And maybe in a sacred space or something, you behave differently. And so what if you already create these spaces within yourself? Well, it takes some time, right? Like if I'm going to build a house, I need to like figure out what the foundation is going to be and all this other stuff. And so when, when we do a do nothing type of meditation, you're exploring this inner space and seeing what's there. What can you, what can you observe with your eyes and, you know, what kind of experiences are coming up? What is your mind telling you? Yeah. Like, you know, it's today is Saturday and Sunday. You got to go somewhere. You got to meet this person. All those things, they'll start to die down. But if you let them, and then once you let them, then other things will come up more deep, more profound things. And as, as you just sit and become more comfortable with that, then you enter different dimensions of yourself. You're, I, I say, looking behind the curtain or looking under the hood, because you don't know your inner workings until you take a moment to allow them to open up in front of you. And once you do, then you see all the mechanisms and what's working for you, what's not working for you. And then you can create some space. And each time that you spend, the more time you spend in that, those, those empty beats, the more space you start to develop for what can ultimately be like love for yourself, appreciation for yourself and what's working and what's not working. And it's not really um, a place to judge yourself. It's really just a place to allow what is to be so that you can see yourself more clearly. Because the more that we want to say that we like this part of ourselves or this set of stories or this collection of identities and don't like these parts of ourselves, a part of ourselves that was bullied and abused and this and that, like they're all part of our story. And if we have some type of attachment or we have some type of aversion to it, then it just takes us away from the, the truth of it all. And that takes us away from those degrees of freedom or this level of presence that we can have this level of being okay with accepting what is in the normal waking state. And so I would say the ideal type is probably for most people is just to create the, the type to learn how to create space within yourself so that you can be okay with just whatever life throws at you that you can, you know, that you're resilient, you know, that you're robust because you've went over these experiences and you've created the time and the space for yourself to process them. Um, but if that doesn't work out, you can always do those types of meditations that you focus on, you know, some type of anchor, but Pawson is a good style for that type of meditation as well. Yeah. No, cool. <clears throat> really appreciate that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can I ask you, I, before I go into a comment, do you use music or no music when you meditate just out of interest? I, I, I can meditate to anything. So, I mean, there are like, I guess, in the morning, I just do this thing with the timer. It hits a, a, a bell and then that's it. But um, if I'm boxing, say I was just sparring about uh, two hours ago and I turn this one song that I have, it's a trigger to my flow state. It's one of the techniques that you can use to get yourself into flow. And when I listen to the song, whether it's I'm working or whether I'm fighting or whatever, it's I my mind is automatically starting to tune into this other space, you know, this this frequency. And I can step outside of myself and I, I can leave all, everything behind and just go into that slip, slip into that space. And so it, um, I don't really have a preference. I, I think once you, you do enough, anything can be a meditation. Even just this conversation is a meditation. Really. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I look back um, years back when, when I was you know, at school and studying and I've always found this is 
I used to have music on, but the music was to block out the background noise. And then yeah. I, I had the ability to block out the music. So when that music uh, went on, like there was that music um, and there might be playing. And then I, I could be in a state where I may not have even listened to a song for 20 minutes. And then you come out and go, oh, the radio is still on because it actually was this thing. And I've always found that I'm the same with that, that um, for me, I have the ability to, if I'm meditating, there's a certain um, certain song, you know, it, it goes for about 40 minutes that I'll listen to, but I know that I can use that. And I'll know the thoughts will come in and out and I'll start to generate early. But then as I go deeper, the thoughts slow down, as you're saying, and they start to disappear. And then I just get lost in time. And then, yeah. sort of, then you might come out and go, oh, I can hear that that tune again. And then, you know, and then you drop in again and then there's no, there's nothing. And then, you, yeah, you're right. You're off in this different space and, you know, whether it be flying through mountains or whatever happens to be in these great experiences, Next thing you know, there's a chant at the end of the song. You go, oh, actually, that 45 minutes went quicker than I expected. You know, the first five minutes feels like it. This is going to be a long time. You're sitting down. You're not mm. comfortable. You've just woken up. You're sort of trying to work your way through. And then, yeah, you just got to maybe sit down. And there's, I think there's a little bit of that um, persistence and resilience when you start to meditate as well. It's like, yeah. you know, um, I, I often say, I think there's a level of arrogance that we can have is to go, you know, I can sit down and expect I can do a 45-minute meditation, you know, tomorrow if I haven't done the practice all the way. There's a bit of arrogance that I can drop into it. It's like, no, no, no it's a practice. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's like me going out and saying, I could shoot 100% three-pointers, right, without having picked yeah. up a basketball. Like, every six months I could go and just shoot. Like, you're not going to be able to do it. Right? It's so yeah. people need to understand these are practices and – over time, you adapt to it and you adjust to it and you get better at it and you become more calm at it. And it, yeah, and you're right. Then it starts to come in. Like I've got to the point now, if I'm on a plane and I put on that 45 minute thing, I can I can just zone out on the plane and just meditate, uh, which yeah. is cool. So yeah, you get to your your mind has that little trigger point. I think that picks up on certain songs and, as you said, can help you drop into a, a flow state. It's like I. I- those old dial type of radios where you're, you know, you're picking the station 107.8 or whatever. And I think there's all this noise until you get there, until you find it, like that static free part. And I think a lot of meditation sort of could be considered like that. And I think intelligence could be described that way too, is like, what do you focus on? Like given this huge landscape or, you know, this conversation, what part of this conversation do I focus on? Do I, do I build on? And what parts do I allow just to, just to sit in the back and develop, you know, I think in a way we're developing a relationship with our, what we focus on. And through that, I think we can become more intelligent (laughs) through meditation as, because we're working on just, you know, going through this, radio dial of like what's the right frequency where, where do i want to be and 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 then just allowing the music to play and then maybe you go on a different radio station or something like that and you don't let other people dictate what radio station you are and you kind of just figure out exactly how to tune your brain for the right type of and then you know i don't know if you've heard of the muse or those other biofeedback type of devices where they actually literally help you attune your brain to you know certain types of frequencies or states so yeah i think it's pretty interesting so uh, um thanks for your time but i want to ask you a couple of questions before we close yeah, off of course. if that's okay um this could be the million dollar question having been through what you've been through what is your purpose in life have you got a view now about 
your purpose, where you're heading, and and what life looks like looks like for you. Yeah, I think the um, I we all, I think we all have many purposes. I would say my purpose right now that I'm most focused on, other than having you know so much fun with life and sharing so much love with everybody that's around me, is to build a flow state training company that's international. I think that with the amount of innovation that we've we we've unlocked as a society when it comes to nuclear fusion, which was something that was recently. Uh, released or somebody got a Nobel prize for it last year. And then we have AI going rampant this year and part of last year as well. There's just so much leverage that we have, except for we don't have the wisdom and we get in our own way. And that's sort of this idea that we can't cooperate with each other. You know, we operate in silos and we're disconnecting and we're disconnected. And so I think the key for humanity at this point, you know, with World War III brimming and all this other weird stuff happening is that we learn to see other people's perspective and how to connect with others. Because I think as soon as we can do that, then that opens the door for uh, innovation, basically for cooperation, which is, I think, as a species, our most incredible uh, gift. And so... Because right now, I don't think we're able to access that because of just where we're at in society. And I think I just want to be the facilitator, if I can, or some sort of catalyst. I have a lot of business knowledge. I've you know operated multiple businesses, sold them, scaled them, but I've never done anything like this. So this will be quite a challenge for me. But I have, I'm developing a really solid team. I have really solid contacts of people that I'm ready to add in as soon as we're ready to. And so I'm really excited to just connect people with the flow state. I, I believe that flow state is probably the, the highest level of fulfillment that we can experience. It's correlated higher than pleasure in a lot of uh, studies. And so I, I think that I want to open up the door for infinite leverage through cooperation, through connecting to technology. And I think that we can do that through experiencing flow state in one domain and then opening it up to our entire life. Beautiful. I love that. It's uh, all the best for that because if you're going to achieve, you know, that along the way through, you know, that's just going to make this world a better place because, you know, all, all the terms you touched on about this segregation and disconnection and separation and judgment, you know, all excuses to be able to, you know, hierarchy myself outside of other people and everything else. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, if we can start to break that down and get it back to, you know, we are all just one and we actually, you know, we don't have to compete anymore. We don't have to have this, yeah. you know, we don't have to live in comparison. We don't have to live in competition. In fact, we could actually go through a win-win-win exercise with everybody. And, you know, if yeah. we all saw that as a viewpoint, then we could actually be in a much better place. Yes, you get it. That's 100%. Yeah, we're on the same page. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's that, that's what my business is about as well. It's about, um, you know, I have, have a whole section in, in my program, which is about, judgment versus inquiry and why we spend judging and why we're in competition and how we can remove that and how much simpler life becomes when you're there to actually help and raise someone else, you know, as opposed to try to climb on top of them so you can actually take the next step up and so much more fulfillment um, in in that space um, and and a lot more internal happiness comes out of that because you've known what you've actually done. Um, 
The last question that I do want to ask you is, you know, this is about men and you've been um, great in talking about your journey and, you know, um, you know, the challenges you had as a young guy and, you know, um, pretty much being suspended from school and everything else. So, um, and you've also touched on elements around, you know, that's in the past. Am I attaching to the past or am I actually now able to, you know, live in the present and know that that was a part of my journey, but it's not who I am. So what would be a message for men or, you know, that are out there listening to this um, that you could drop in there to help them maybe transcend as to where they are with some of their challenges to, you know, be more present in their life? It's a really deep question and I won't be able to do it justice, but I'll try. I think, one of the things that modern society has afforded us is incredible amounts of luxury. And I, you know, we can talk about like the Mercedes Benz. I don't mean that kind of luxury. I mean, just the fact that I can go down the street and have this beautiful Japanese cheesecake that my ancestors never would have been able to taste. And there's a problem with that. And I think the problem is uh, fundamentally, I don't think we're, our taste buds are tuned and designed. This is just a small analogy, but they're designed for us to optimize what would be most nutrient dense for us, but it's not necessarily what we should be eating all the time. And I think oftentimes our senses misguide us and because of the modern luxuries that we live in. And so I think the way to combat that is really to understand what have, like ask ourselves, like what have we earned in our life? And when you earn something, there's a relationship that you have to it. Not only that you're grateful for it, but also that you fully understand what that thing is because to earn it, you would have had to understand what that thing is. And so like an example I could say is when you're 16 or 15 or whatever, you get your driver's license, you now have the power to like basically manslaughter, just run people over. Right. And you have no ethics, no, like you're 15, like, but that's the power you have. And now we have these people that are like 30, 40, 50, they, they, you know, can push a button and, and launch a nuclear missile, right? And there's no there's no connection to the the amount of the incredible amount of power that we've been afforded, even with technology or anything. And so I think like whatever we think that is most central to who we are, you know, in terms of technology, whether it's the car or the computer, the internet, whatever it is, just really understanding that without a relationship where we earn something, and I don't just mean earn it because you can pay for it, but earn it in the sense of really deeply understanding it. If it's so core to your lifestyle, when you earn it, there's a rite of passage that automatically happens. That earning, that understanding, that that knowledge, that that wisdom, that will, I think, allow us to have a proper relationship with it. And what I mean proper is like you have certain neurochemicals that are that are firing as you have a as you're interacting with whatever that thing is. And that happens to be dopamine and you know serotonin and oxytocin because because you feel like you earned it because you have a relationship with it because you appreciate it on a really deep level and I think you know it's it's so easy to make a bunch of money and buy a bunch of stuff and not be attacked like not be have a relationship with any of this stuff and your life still is the same and I think the problem is just that we don't have that deep level of connection with um, earning things so just I think because we grew up in this time without a rite of passage, you know, I think if you're a Jewish, maybe you have this bar mitzvah, or if you're Mexican, you have the quinceanera, but uh, there's not really a lot of rites of passages for men amongst other men. And I think seeking out uh, actually men who you aspire to be like, or respect to 
sort of work out what the rites of passages would be. Like, hey, what do you think, you know, the next milestone, this is where I'm at. Like, what do you think? And then so you have that relationship with life where you're earning things along the way. It just, I think, really changes because without that, men, especially men, I think part of our role is to lead. I think it goes back to this yin yang thing, right? And the, the yang of it is is to know where you're going and to lead with a sense of co- certainty, which leads to confidence. And anything that's not within that realm of certainty that's been earned is just maybe foolishness or cockiness, and uh, it will ultimately lead to our dissatisfaction with whatever's happening in our lives or around us. So I think just really just dialing this whole little tidbit that I just brought up is just being able to earn our rites of passage through life and really developing a sincere relationship with those things, with people even that are around us that allow us to be who we are today. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I think you've touched on some really key elements in there, particularly around the lack of or loss of rites of passage uh, for men. Because, yeah, I think so many things come a number of things come quite easy to people, like they've had ready access to things, this whole thing that, you know, my generation will be better off and my previous generation was just better than previous generation, like always make it a bit better. But the, the question is, are we truly making it better? You know, are we actually making it better or are we actually making that life so much easier that that person didn't have to, as you said, earn earn it themselves and it's not again it's not going out getting a job and earning the money it's actually the experience and and the you know having dealt with some of those things or gone through that deeper i suppose healing and, and everything that to, to, to go through yeah. to be able to come out and be what i'd call a grounded man um as opposed to you know um probably a shadow man you know or mm. or men dressed up as boys or boys dressed up as men um which i think we see a lot in society now so yeah, thanks for that. I really love how you put that together. Um, thanks, Tim. Thank you for your time. I've really loved this conversation. Um, you know, it's uh, it's very close to me in, in where my journey is in relation to that, just being present, you know, um, feeling, accepting disconnection from society. So, um, you know, I find it's really funny. I've, I'm in a situation where I don't, it's not that I don't care, in, in what I do and how I go about doing something because, you know, there's a sense of achievement of pride, but I also know that, you know, my 80 odd years here on this earth, earth compared to the 80 billion years it's been here, it's very small and it's quite insignificant. And, you know, whether that thing happened or not, actually doesn't make a bigger difference in the larger picture and yeah, trying to navigate in, in that society. So it's good to have these conversations with uh, someone else who's, yeah, in a similar path, um, you know, and sort of, yeah, it, it's great. So thank you. No, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation, the depth that we've had and just the sort of how we just improvise and build on each other's, um, what, what we shared. Uh, I got a lot out of it and I'm really just really grateful to you for having, creating the space, uh, for creating this podcast, for inviting me on it. So thank you. No, thanks, man. Uh, you have a beautiful Friday evening. Go and enjoy whatever dinner uh, you're going to have or try and stay away from that Japanese cheesecake, maybe. Um, <laughs> so have a great evening. It's been awesome chatting to you, Tim, and um, I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thanks, mate. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Hey, hey folks, it's um, 
That was Tim. Uh, what an awesome chat we had with uh, Tim along the way through. Um, I really enjoyed that because, you know, I felt a lot of connection into where Tim's at and a, a lot of similarities where I am on my journey in my life. So, you know, that's why I love getting on the different men in, into the podcast and having the chat. So I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, I'll put all the links as to where you can find about at Tim and his, um, his flow state and the business he's actually operating. And I'd suggest if anyone um, around the globe wants to tap into Tim, um, I think you, you're not going to go wrong by working with him in the future. So that's a wrap for episode 71 of the Unearthed Man podcast. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Sending you much love and peace, Steve.